Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 245. King Alfred, infrastructure is sexy, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Shelley, Paul, and Jessica for signing up already. For the Viking army fleeing Shubury, there wasn't much to look forward to in a winter holiday at Chester. It would be wet, it would be cold, it would be creepy... The old Roman settlement had been abandoned for quite some time, and that probably didn't sit well with the superstitious Danes. And besides being creepy, Chester also promised generally rough living. I mean, sure, it might sit next to farmland and a few small settlements, but this wasn't the civitas that had once been. The Danes weren't marching in and setting up in a nice little manner. These were ruins. Old ruins. This was going to be hardcore camping. And to top it all off, just to the west of their refuge sat King Anarod of Gwyneth. And he was now allied with King Alfred. And Ilderman Athelred of Mercia was ruling over the territory to the east. The only saving grace of Chester was that it was reasonably close to the Northumbrian territory, which was the lands of their allies. But that fact probably came as small comfort, considering how close they were to everyone else and everyone else wanted them dead. But as they approached the old fortress ruins, they must have realized that the only luck that they had was that they made it there alive. Chester was even worse than they expected, and it would need serious work if they were going to make it defensible. Though, these were experienced raiders. They knew how to quickly build a perimeter, and so they set about doing exactly that. Unfortunately for the Danes, the Eldermen of Wessex and Mercia weren't in a forgiving mood. They had no interest in giving the Danes a chance to rest and recover after their recent loss. And despite the audacity of the cross-country march, Haston's army had failed to take the Anglo-Saxons by surprise. As they moved through the country, the Eldermen knew what this army was up to. And to make matters worse, finding this army was a simple task for the Eldermen. Communication and scouting was a key part of the new defenses of Greater Wessex. And so as the Danes marched across the Midlands, stealing and looting as they went, messages were being relayed. And consequently, it wasn't long before the Eldermen and their forces arrived at the ruins of Chester. And what they walked in on wasn't a military defensive force. It wasn't a Vikinger shield wall ready for war. It was a pastoral scene. The Danes had taken possession of Chester, but despite digging in behind defensive structures, many of those same Danes were now out in the fields, tending to the crops and caring for their stolen cattle. Were it not for the fact that they were an invading army, it's possible that nothing would have seemed amiss in this scene. It probably looked like typical peasant work. Only these weren't typical peasants. The Eldermen knew these men and their kind way too well, and they were in no mood for mercy. We're told that the unlucky Danes caught outside the walls were killed, 
and that their stolen cattle was seized. And that suggests a rapid advance. Now, I've thought a great deal about this attack, and here's the thing that jumps out at me. The Danes really shouldn't have been caught outside the walls under any kind of normal circumstances. And granted, they might have been a fair distance away from the ramparts. After all, they were herding grazing cattle. But even then, as soon as the first warband came into view, the Danes should have been able to run away. And yet they didn't. They were all killed. So why? Well, we know that the Anglo-Saxons had horses. And we know that they were using them at least for transport. We also know that in his youth, Alfred led a cavalry force which he used to harry the army of Halfdan. And given the speed of this initial attack, and the fact that it was so successful, I suspect that this had to have been the work of Anglo-Saxon cavalry. And considering how expensive horses were, this cavalry may well have been the personal warband or warbands of the eldermen who were advancing on Chester. But whoever it was, their work was devastating. All the cattle was seized, and the Danes that were tending them were slaughtered. The Northmen, once again, had underestimated the speed of the Anglo-Saxon response and were now trapped behind their walls. Only this time, the scale of the Danish defenses were far greater. The ruins of Chester made it pretty much impossible for the Eldermen to effectively create a curtain around the encampment. Holes in the siege were inevitable. There was simply too much ground to cover. And that meant that should they want to, the Danes could sneak out and gain supplies or perhaps even send word to their allies in neighboring kingdoms, like Northumbria. The Eldermen had to find a way to prevent the Danes from gaining supplies. If they could do that, then they might be able to force the Danes to leave their walls and fight them, just like they had done at Buddington. So, it was decided. If the Danes were going to take advantage of the holes in the lines and sneak out and raid the fields surrounding Chester then the Eldermen would ensure that there was nothing in those fields and farms to be taken. Entire crops were seized or burned by the Anglo-Saxons all throughout the region. This was scorched earth. This was Wareham all over again. Only this time, it wasn't the Danes who were wielding famine like a weapon. It was the Anglo-Saxons. Now the raiders could sneak out of their walls all they wanted, because all they would find in their foraging parties was devastation. These eldermen served Alfred, but they weren't Alfred. And it seems pretty clear that they didn't share his tendency to grant mercy and clemency. It's a pretty astounding revelation about where the Anglo-Saxon nobility were in regard to the Northmen at this point in history. At Buddington, they had shown that they wanted nothing less than the destruction of this army. And at Chester, they were showing just how far they were willing to go to achieve that goal. They would burn their own lands. They would inflict pain upon their own subjects. They would risk famine, if for no other reason, than it might also kill the Danes. And sitting behind their walls in Chester, watching for two days as the Anglo-Saxons systematically cut down and burned the fields all around the encampment, the gravity of what was facing them was finally sinking in. These eldermen were going to starve them out. Again. 
and last time, they barely survived with their lives. They might not be so lucky this time. If they stayed in Chester, they would probably die. Morale must have been non-existent. Buddington and Benfleet were both wrecked by the Anglo-Saxons, and many of the warriors of this army had been part of the fleet from Appledore, who, despite having a gargantuan force of 250 ships' crews, had been utterly crushed by Edward Atheling at Farnham. They had all come to Haston's fleet from a variety of different backgrounds and crews, but they had all come on this campaign for wealth. And yet time and time again, across multiple fleets, battlefields, and kingdoms, they were finding little more than blood and suffering. And that was all that awaited them if they stayed in Chester. They had to get out. Now. So utilizing the landscape to cover their movements, the remnants of the once great fleet fled from yet another fortified encampment and ran west. They were going straight into the territory of their former allies, the kingdom of Gwyneth. And once there, the Danes used the hills and woods to conceal their movements and strike at unsuspecting Welsh farmland. It was a far cry from the glorious looting that they had previously sought, but at least through this, they wouldn't come home empty-handed. The small relics from local churches, the occasional silversmithing tools, and whatever else the locals had on hand would have to do. They had to salvage this campaign somehow. So they pushed on through Gwyneth, raiding and hoping to avoid the warbands of King Anarod ap Rodri. And the desperation of this move makes me wonder what sort of social and economic situation these Danes were in. Because after this many losses, you would think they would decide to pack it in, wouldn't you? The sheer persistence of this endeavor, and the fact that they all signed on for it, and the fact that they had placed their families and possessions under the care of the East Anglians in order to even make this last push across Britain. Well, it all makes me wonder if they were under some sort of obligation. There's no record of what was motivating them, and why they refused to turn back. But if they had no choice... If they had nowhere to turn back to, well, that might go a long way towards explaining their behavior. I mean, what if their families weren't really under the care of the East Anglians? What if they were being held in trust until this band could repay a debt? That also could explain a great deal. And is it really so hard to imagine that the East Anglian nobility might have held them accountable for any damage that Elderman Athelred and his army inflicted on their march to Benfleet? I mean, this is all raw speculation, but the fact that this army presses on does raise a question about what part of the story we're still missing. Here's something else that causes me to pause. Haston isn't mentioned by name after the defeat at Bunnington in 893. That's why I've been referring to this force as his army, but I haven't specifically mentioned him as being part of it. I mean, he might have been. The scribes seem to be rather capricious about who they include in their tiny little entries. But since he wasn't mentioned specifically, we can't be sure that he was with this force. Maybe he stayed behind. Maybe he was killed. Personally, I think he was there. But we may never know. Now, meanwhile... As this was all going on, to the south, Alfred and his army were still besieging the Danes at Devon. 
and his fleet were still blockading that same group of Danes. These things take time, and that fact was becoming painfully obvious. Rather than enjoying the rapid successes his eldermen were, Alfred was still stuck outside of the Danish encampment, waiting. You know, when I imagine the excitement of siege warfare, I imagine a DMV. No one's happy, no one wants to be there, but no one's leaving either. You're all locked together in an endless waiting game, just hoping for something good to happen. But it won't, because you're at the DMV. That's how I imagine a siege like this would be. It sucked for everyone involved. And this was before Flappy Bird. Also, consider the living situation that everyone was in. You had a ton of people living in close proximity for month after month. And people are filthy creatures. If you disagree with me, tell me this. Can you say with confidence that you have always washed your hands after using the loo? Really? Are you telling me that there isn't just one time where you were really sick or half asleep or just too drunk to remember? Yeah, that's what I thought. People are gross. And these are people who are living hard lives lacked a modern understanding of bacteria, and, despite the boredom of the siege, were also under a lot of stress. Their camps would have been filthy. And the point here is that if you decided to engage in siege warfare, you had to accept the risk that you might literally shit yourself to death. And that's even if you're healthy, which Alfred wasn't. The longer this went on, the greater the concern the court likely had for Alfred's butt. Siege warfare sucks. And actually, the West Saxons had the better position. The Northumbrian East Anglian army was locked up tight. They couldn't get out. And they were stuck with whatever supplies they had on hand. Maybe forging parties could slip through the lines. Maybe. But in general, they were bottled up. At least Alfred's men could take a stroll before relieving themselves. The invading army didn't have that luxury. They were living in it. So human excrement, rotting offal from any animals they butchered to keep the men fed, the corpses of any of their fallen comrades, and just general grime would have all mixed together to create an environment that probably smelled a bit like that barrel that King Charles the Bald was stuffed into. Remember that? So gross. But, despite the filth, the siege went on. And on. And finally, in the spring of 894, after nearly a year of this misery, the invading army decided to pack it in. And for good reason. The gods were turning against them. The Appledore Danes were defeated. Haston's fleet had been defeated. The siege of Exeter had failed. And now, they were the last holdout of this once multi-pronged army. And all of Wessex, rather than being stretched thin with too many fronts to handle, was able to focus all of their forces upon them. It was time to go home. And for his part, Alfred was all too happy to have them leave. So the blockade was lifted, and the Northumbrian East Anglian forces boarded their ships and set sail leaving behind an encampment that probably could only be cleansed with fire. 
but at long last, they could return home. There was just one small problem. Not everyone wanted to go home. According to Athelweird, King Sigifirth of Northumbria in particular wasn't pleased with the idea of suffering through a long siege, only to return home empty-handed. He came for riches and conquest, and he wanted it. So, as the fleet passed the rich southern coast of Wessex, he came to a decision. Alfred's guard was down, and now was the perfect time to launch an attack. So he brought the fleet ashore in Sussex, near Chichester, perhaps even using the natural harbor that the area provides. And he and his warriors rushed towards the settlement. It was a good idea. Due to the speed in which the Northumbrian fleet could move, Alfred and his army were probably still many miles from there. Chichester was exposed and ripe for plunder. Only it really wasn't. Chichester still had its own burr, and half of the local forces were still present in the region. After all, they were on leave. Apparently, no one told King Sigifirth of Alfred's military reforms, and so he was probably expecting the old ways, where warriors were professional, small in number, and probably mostly with the king's army while he was out on campaign. But instead, Here was an entire reserve force who might look like peasants and who might be working regular peasant lives, but were actually trained soldiers who were ready to fight should the situation call for it. And it was certainly called for. The armed response by the people of Chichester was quick and overwhelming. We're told that many hundreds of Northumbrian East Anglian warriors were cut down and that the local forces even captured some of Sigifirth's ships as the fleet hastily retreated. Mighty King Sigifirth had been bested by peasants. The gods were truly turning against them. And for some of the crews, they had seen enough ill fortune and death, and they left the Danish fleet. But the rest stayed together, and they set course for mercy. At about the same time as all of this, the remnants of Haston's fleet, satisfied by their looting on the outskirts of Gwyneth, decided that they shouldn't press their luck any farther, and so they began their march back to East Anglia. But they weren't stupid. Every time that they ventured into Mercia, things went incredibly badly for them. So rather than taking a direct route, the bedraggled forces marched up into Northumbria, which was friendly territory. And then they went east across the kingdom, until finally they could move south into East Anglia. It wasn't an ideal route. It would have taken quite a long time, and it also would have taken them through the fens. But dealing with Swampland was far better than dealing with the likes of Athelhelm, Athelnoth, and Athelred. So after a long scenic route, at long last, the remnants of Haston's fleet reached the Vikinger encampment, at mercy. And while their campaign had been pretty much a disaster, they quickly discovered that the rest of the raiding bands had returned from their campaigns empty-handed and with a list of fallen companions. Against all odds, Haston's fleet, the black dogs of this entire endeavor, had turned out to be the only ones with anything to show for it. But even they weren't without losses. They'd lost a great deal of their soldiers and even Haston's own wife and children had been captured by these Anglo-Saxons. 
But despite all of that, they still were the most successful band of this once great multi-army invasion. Which should tell you about how well the last few years have been going. But speaking of Haston's family, they were still alive. And actually, they were waiting for Alfred's judgment. And now that Alfred's siege was over, and the western shires were secured, he was free to march to London and mete out some old-timey justice. By fall of 894, Alfred and his retinue arrived in London, probably with all the fanfare that you'd expect a victorious king to receive. I mean, this guy's reforms weren't without controversy. Even Asser remarked on how some of the nobility stubbornly refused to build the defenses that were called for. And there were times where Alfred actually had to go out and change their minds, sometimes rather forcefully. But now, in the autumn of 894, he was fully vindicated. The Burgle system was an unqualified success. Thanks to the defensive structures, the quick transport of messages, and the organization of the Ferd, not to mention the careful diplomacy that brought Wessex, Mercia, Cornwall, and virtually all of Wales under a single banner, they had managed to fend off Haston's fleet of 80 ships, the Northumbrian fleet, the East Anglian fleet, and the Appledore fleet of 250 ships. Decades earlier, the great heathen army nearly brought Wessex to an end. But they had just withstood a far greater invasion force than that, and they hadn't just survived it, they demolished it. Repeatedly. Even when the Danes tried underhanded tactics, like double crosses, oath-breaking, and sneak attacks, even then, the Anglo-Saxons stood victorious at the end. Alfred was about as triumphant as he could have possibly dreamed, and now he was riding into London, to pass judgment upon Haston's family. For months, they have been waiting for this moment. And if it was left to Elderman Athelred, or Athelhelm and Athelnoth for that matter, I'm relatively certain that they would have been executed the moment that Haston sailed up the Thames. But Alfred wasn't cut from the same cloth as his warrior Elderman. Or maybe he was, but he was also just held to a different ethical standard because of his station. Whatever it was, Alfred wasn't inclined to be as unbending as his generals had proven to be. Haston had committed sins against Alfred and his kingdom, but Alfred was determined to rule in a Christ-like fashion, and so he wasn't going to punish the sons for the sins of the father, nor was he going to punish their mother. Instead, he ordered that they be immediately returned to Haston. Now, a fair amount of ink has been spilled over this event and what it means. Was Alfred influenced by the bond of godfather to godson, as the scribes indicate? Was Alfred seeking to provide an example of how charity and obligation are to be carried out? Was he simply behaving according to cultural expectations? Was he naive? Or was he just really nice? We don't know what was in his mind. The scribes tell us that he was influenced by the fact that he and Athelred stood as godfathers over the boys. And that's the only word that we get on the matter. But unfortunately, they aren't overly reliable, so we don't know for sure. Furthermore, we don't know how Haston responded to this act. There is no account of what happened with Haston, the sons, or the wife after Alfred offered clemency. But in the autumn of 894, Alfred must have been feeling pretty good about himself. 
things were looking up. Then, in early winter, scouts rushed into court and informed Alfred that the Vikinger in camp at Mercy had entirely emptied out. And not just the warriors, even the women and children had boarded the ships. But rather than leaving for their homelands, they had sailed up the Thames, turned up the River Lee, and were now sitting behind a fortified encampment at Hartford. So a massive fortified camp of Danes were now sitting just 23 miles north of London. I guess the demonstration of charity didn't work. And while the scribes don't detail Alfred's reaction, I have to imagine it was pretty close to, are you f***ing kidding me? If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.